And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, December 5th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, as January 1st nears, consider improving your health care coverage while we still have open season. Plus, using Medicare data to uncover hidden signs of elder abuse. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, when it comes to data on bid protests, you'll find precious little, actually, beyond the annual bid protest report to Congress that comes from the Government Accountability Office, agencies track few outcomes from protests. Well, Dave Drabkin and Chris Eukins are both veterans of federal acquisition, now fellows with the Acquisition Innovation Research Center. They tell executive editor Jason Miller about what they found in new research on protests and how agencies can benefit more by following and understanding that data. GAO captures the data of what's filed with it. Uh, The Court of Claims has started Well, it always captured the data, but it didn't organize it so that other people could look at it. And there was almost no data on agency-level bid protests. Several years ago now, Congress had passed a statute requiring loser pays. What that meant was if you filed a bid protest and you lost, you would then reimburse the government for the costs associated with Uh, defending that protest. And in the process of implementing that requirement, DOD began to create the data elements and uh, a data collection method for, uh, for protests so they could keep track of it. Because at the end of I think it was a year or two years, uh, DOD had to make a report back to Congress and tell them how many protests they had, who won, who lost, and how much money they uh, collected. DOD did not implement that requirement as quickly as they might otherwise have in hopes that Congress would uh, revoke uh, their previous direction. And two years later, Lo and behold, Congress did. So what we found is they began to establish the elements and uh, a location for capturing the data on protests, but they never they never executed. So if you went to DOD today and asked them to talk to you about uh, data associated with protests, how long they took, how much it cost, whether a, a protester actually one, and then what what winning means, which is a big deal because uh, there's a lot of discussion about what winning a protest means. But you can't get that data right now. It doesn't, what we found was it just doesn't exist. Uh, Again, they started building the structure for capturing it. They didn't start capturing it. And that's true for agency-level bid protests, just as it's true for GAO or court of claims protests. Right now, if you talk to GAO, they consider uh, winning, in quotes, uh, when uh, the government either uh, awards a contract to the protester uh, or gets corrective action 
resulting from the protest. And then when you ask them, well, how many protesters actually wind up getting the contract they filed a protest on, uh, the number is, I don't know, six, 10%. It's not the 40 some odd percent they, they quote as winning because they count the corrective action as winning. If you're a protester and you're trying to figure out uh, whether it's worth your investment and your money to file a protest, I think it's pretty important to know what the likelihood is that you'll actually get a contract. You may spend a lot of money uh, and you may wind up getting a decision that the government didn't follow all of its rules, but you may not get the contract. And I think it's pretty important to understand what it means to file a protest and win. And that's true for whether it's agency level, GAO level, or the court of claims level. And so when we looked at the whole process, we also talked to the procurement executives within the department. And um, it's, I think it's important to know that all of them thought that having a bid protest process was really important. And they liked the idea of an agency level bid protest process because it looked less expensive and faster in terms of allowing the purchase to proceed that's the subject of a protest, but they too didn't have the data on what was really going on with protests at any level. I mean, they get a report about how many JO cases they, there were. They might get that report you know, once a year. JO uh, publishes its statistics at, in the beginning of the new fiscal year normally, but they don't have the complete view of the protest system from the court of claims down to the agency level bid protest process. They also don't have the current data provided to them to allow them to identify problems in the procurement process, which are manifesting themselves in contractors who are unhappy with how the government is managing the the acquisition process and they pay a lot of money for the protest process in terms of what comes out of salaries and budget and time to take delivering products and services to their customers internally but what they don't have is right now available to them at their fingertips on their computers the ability to see trends where there may be a problem with the notice part of the procurement process. Did they did they identify the requirement correctly? Did they have uh, pr uh, good performance measures, both for evaluating offers before they make the award and post-award for measuring whether they actually got what the government paid for? And so another thing that we noticed and commented on in our report was the fact that the protest process is important to manage the the procurement process but we don't 
take advantage of access to the data, which allows us to understand whether there's a place in our process that needs our immediate attention, whether it's training, whether one of our rules is defective and needs to be rewritten. We don't have that ability to do that from our desktops. The only time you re your attention really gets drawn there is when there's a big case that makes the news or Congress gets upset and starts uh, summoning you or someone your, or your boss to the Hill to explain why something happened. And so instead of being able to manage on a proactive basis using the data, which by the way, they already collect. They just don't put it in a place where they can use it. They just don't have a way to proactively manage when there are trends in problems that manifest themselves in the protest process. Let's just talk about some of the uh, recommendations you all made. You know, you made, I think, uh, eight total about what could you do what could be done? Uh, maybe just highlight a couple of them that you think uh, are, could have some more immediate effect and then what, what's more long-term. What's most likely to advance based on the feedback we got is our recommendations regarding agency level bid protests. Ironically, ironically, Jason, you go back to 94 and what the, the Clinton executive order, that was based on great experience at the Army Material Command. AMC is still the best agency level bid protest system. If we took the best practices from AMC regarding agency level bid protests and best practices from other agencies across the government that we, we compiled in this report and the administrative conference report, the best practices from across the government could make agency level bid protests much more effective. And they're a pathway forward then for really dealing with bid protests, not as a catastrophe, but as a management tool. David Drabkin is a fellow at the Stevens Institute of Technology, and Chris Eukins is a professor at the George Washington University. They're both with the Acquisition Innovation Research Center. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find Jason's story and a link to the bid protest report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, using Medicare data to uncover signs of elder abuse. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Across the country, crimes involving elder abuse and neglect routinely go unreported. But even when those cases aren't immediately reported to police, there can often be clues in Medicare and Medicaid data. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services already looks for those signs in claims data, but a recent IG audit found a lot more cases that could have been reported to state and local authorities if CMS had done a more rigorous analysis. Curtis Roy is a regional inspector general with HHS. Richard Miller is an assistant regional inspector general. They spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about their findings. You hear Miller first. Promoting public health and safety is a major component of the HHS OIG strategic plan. And we've conducted a number of audits in different care settings that revealed problems related to unreported incidents of potential abuse or neglect. Our current work really started about a decade ago after several media reports concerning unreported abuse and neglect in group homes. At that time, the, the challenge we faced was how to identify incidents that we're not aware of that aren't reported. That's when we came up with the idea to focus on data analysis. If the patients require medical treatment and Medicare pays for it, then there is a record of the events, even if it was un unreported. And that was really our starting point. 
this type of data analysis wasn't being performed at the time. So it was about thinking outside the box to help it address an ongoing problem. That makes perfect sense. And that's a great setup to talk about what you actually found in this in this latest audit. So tell us a bit about what the, the numbers reveal about the the total number of potentially unreported cases out there. So by performing a data extract of Medicare claims data um, using these diagnosis codes that specifically indicate abuse and neglect was suspected, we identified approximately 30,000 claims over a two-year period where abuse or neglect was suspected. We then selected a random sample of these claims, reviewed the supported medical records, and confirmed whether the incidents were reported to the appropriate agencies. We found that as many as one in five of the incidents weren't properly reported. If the agencies aren't aware of the incident, then they can't investigate and ensure that the Medicare enrollees are safe in receiving the quality care they deserve. And is CMS correctly identifying any universe of these potential cases and notifying law enforcement? How, how does that currently work? How's it, how, how could it work? Sure. CMS shares the same commitment to patient safety as the HHSOIG and is well aware that abuse and neglect of Medicare enrollees is, is a significant problem. In fact, that there are federal requirements, um, you know, such as the conditions of participation in 1150, Section 1150B of the Social Security Act that specifically address um, reporting cases of abuse and neglect. However, based on the results of our audit, you know, we're seeing that there are gaps in these requirements. The re- recommendations in our report were for, for CMS to analyze the data to identify specific trends and patterns, conduct a targeted claims review to assess the issue, and develop guidance and best practices based on their findings. We also recommend recommended that CMS assess whether existing federal requirements for reporting abuse and neglect should be strengthened, and CMS did agree with all of our recommendations. The the key takeaway from this audit is that Medicare data is a valuable resource, and there's a real opportunity to use this data to protect Medicare enrollees by reducing the frequency of unreported incidents. So we've conducted a number of related audits, which really started with Medicaid data. And based on the results of those audits, we have clear evidence that this type of data analysis does work. Based on our prior work, we're starting to see states effectively use data analysis to reduce unreported incidents in the Medicaid program. And we're confident that a similar approach can benefit Medicare enrollees as well. And this may be beyond the scope of your work, but but is there any sense at this point how big a lift it would be for CMS to start using the data in the way that you're suggesting here? Do, do they have the adequate analytical capability to start making this routine? Sure. CMS does have current safeguards in place um, through their quality improvement and program integrity functions, you know, to, to improve quality of care and, you know, prevent fraud, waste and abuse. I just want to make it clear that there there are current mechanisms in place, and our recommendations are intended to improve those mechanisms. A few years ago, we we issued a related audit report um, where we recommended that CMS perform a similar type of claims analysis and then provide that data to the states, so the states can ensure that the incidents were properly reported. However, as part of our current audit, we met with CMS to really understand the obstacles that they had implemented our prior recommendations. 
you know, it's been a number of years in, in the rec recommendations still haven't been implemented. Based on these conversations, we came to understand that there's a, a better mechanism to, to, to perform this function. We specifically recommended in our report for CMS to analyze the trends, assess the issue, and then decide where to go from there. So the main obstacle, can you explain that a little bit more? Why was reporting back to the states, the recommendations that you made in your previous uh, audit work, the recommendation that they communicate directly with the states, why did they see that as an obstacle? And, and why is the approach you're now recommending seen as more feasible? So in our prior audit report, CMS did not concur with several of our, of our recommendations. They cited um, several issues with providing the data to, to the states, such as logistical issues, uh, as well as concerns uh, with HIPAA provisions. Okay, so this new approach essentially just gives them a little bit more freedom to make good decisions about what to do that with that data rather than setting a strict policy that says this information goes to the states. Have I got that about right? Sure, that, that's exactly right. Our recommendations are intended to give CMS the flexibility you know, to use their expertise and then to, to develop methods to incorporate the, the data analysis methodology that we developed. And Kurt, I definitely want to get you in here before we have to say goodbye. Uh, you know, what else should people know about this audit and any other resources out there that you might want to mention? Yeah, you know, we view this as a problem. We've done multiple reports on this issue. And one of the things that I always like to say to folks who, you know, have relatives, in some sort of care facility, be it a nursing home, skilled nursing facility, group home, whatever it might be, a hospital, wherever, that if people see something that they question whether or not potential abuse or neglect is is occurring, that they say something. Because again, this is all part of that getting these possible incidents reported into the proper authorities so that they can be checked out. And if, if something's wrong, it can be dealt with because if people don't say anything, it may take a while for the things that we're recommending to loop back around and you know get that data back out to the people that can do something about it. We wrote back in 2019, a resource guide that's out on our website in order to help our partners out there do the kind of data analysis that we're talking about right here, whether they be a Medicare contractor who processes these insurance claims, whether it's a compliance department in a hospital, uh, whether it's a state Medicaid agency, you know, and we've heard from all of these different types of groups about this resource guide that it is being used. And it's just a step-by-step how-to volume to show people what was the logic that we used when we started doing this kind of data analysis written in such a fashion that they can follow it too and that they can do what we've done. Resource guide for using diagnosis codes in health insurance claims to help identify unreported abuse or neglect. It is pretty useful and it does address an awful lot about what we've just talked about. Curtis Roy, a regional HHS inspector general, and we also heard from assistant regional inspector general Richard Miller, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview along with links to their report and their resource guide at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. 
Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the continuing resolution and for the GSA, something of a continuing evolution. But first, as January 1st comes closer, consider improving your health care coverage. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Some notable changes coming to health care for 2024, retired or not. It would serve you well to understand those changes and your options while open season is still with us. With some timely advice, the editor of the Checkbook Guide to Health Plans for Federal Employees, Kevin Moss. Let's talk about annuitants, retirees. There's lots of changes in the health benefits plans for them coming in 2024, and they equally to the working people have a lot of choices to make, and now they have the opportunity to make them. Give us the rundown of the top line they need to know. Two big things. One, higher premiums, 7.7% for FEHB, but also you're going to see a Part B premium increase too. It's only about 6%, so it's about a $10 price hike per month. It's now the Part B standard premium, $174.70 a month. The other huge thing, though, is Medicare Part D. Federal employees haven't had to worry much about... D is for debt. D is for drugs in this case, Tom. (laughs) And the D for drugs is, you know, federal employees really haven't had to worry much about Part D in the past because prescription drug coverage in the FEHB plans has been as good as what you could get in a Medicare Part D plan and didn't require you to go out to Medicare Part D and pay an extra premium in order to receive it. But in 2022, the Inflation Reduction Act is passed. In it are really important reforms that improve Medicare Part D. This year, insulin capped at $35 a month. Next year, 2024, no enrollee cost share over the catastrophic phase. And Part D premiums can't rise more than 6%. And then the big one that's hitting in 2025, $2,000 out-of-pocket spending cap. You no longer will be charged more than $2,000 for any out-of-pocket prescription drug costs out of a Part D plan. OPM saw these changes and in the spring signaled to the plans that they would like to see the plans be able to provide more Medicare Part D options in their FEHB plans and importantly allow for the first time a new plan type and that is called a PDP plan or a prescription drug plan. This has never been offered before in FEHB. Next year, there are 17 FEHB plans that will have a PDP plan. All of them will auto-enroll you if you're in that FEHB plan and you have Medicare Part A or Parts A and B. There's one difference, and that is the Blue Cross plans. You must have both A and B. They will not auto-enroll you in Medicare Part A. The plans already, probably by the time you listen to this episode, have sent out a notice to you if you're impacted. Let's run down the plans real quick. It's all Blue Cross plans, standard basic FEP Blue Focus, NALC High, MHBP plans, APW High, Rural Carrier, Foreign Service, Samba plans, Health Partners, Aetna Direct Consumer Option, and Aetna Open Access High and Basic. And just a basic question. This covers drugs that are out there that are approved by the FDA that are in the Medicare system. Once in a while, you hear about some new drug that comes out for an exotic disease or it's an exotic remedy, and it's $50,000 for the year. Those generally aren't covered, right? Sometimes they are. In fact, the last two Medicare Part B increases were actually covering 
those types of really expensive drugs, those were actually the principal drivers of some of these Medicare Part B increases. But generally speaking, they may not cover those really expensive experimental clinical trial-like type drugs. They're going to be FDA improved. Do keep in mind that the formulary on these plans is managed by CMS, not OPM. So there could be some differences Probably not if a drug is covered at all. The difference generally is in what tier it's covered. And the tier that it's covered sometimes has impact on your out-of-pocket costs. So in order for these plans to be improved by OPM, they had to offer benefits that are as good or better. We've looked at the coverage. It's true. Generally, the co-pays, the co-insurance is going to be at least the same from the FEHB plan. In some cases, it is lower. And importantly, in a handful of those plans that we mentioned of the 17, they have added the $2,000 out-of-pocket max a year early. So Blue Cross Standard, MHBP plans, Aetna plans, Foreign Service, and Rural Carrier in 2024 have that $2,000 out-of-pocket max protection. So if you have moderate to high prescription drug use and you're not in one of those plans, This could be a really amazing way for you to save some serious money next year by enrolling in one of those plans. Yeah, so the same kind of gestalt applies then. You really need to do some homework, even if you are an annuitant, and just like federal employees still working, don't presume anything and just don't automatically roll over. Even though most people do, this is a really good year to examine it carefully, bringing your own kitchen drawer full of pills with you when you do it. Yeah, there's a little bit of friction to that. You're going to have to go to the plan website, search on the plan formulary on the website to see how that plan's going to cover a drug. You should see that it will still be covered if it was covered by your FEHB plan, but you will want to know how they classified it on the tier system and then know what that out-of-pocket obligation will be. You should find that it's as good or better, but make sure you're double-checking that. And are there other resources that retirees should be looking at right now? At least from my perspective, a lot of this could be very complicated to look at and to understand where should retirees start when they're trying to think about all of this? Well, at GuideToHealthPlans.org, we publish our Guide to Health Plans where we take all of these factors into consideration to rank the plans on estimated yearly costs. There's even more options available in 2024. GEHA, high and standard, two national plans are now offering a Medicare Advantage plan. The way these work is there's some type of Part B reimbursement anywhere from 75 to 150 or more. In fact, Kaiser plans out in the Pacific Northwest in California, they'll go all the way up to 250 and that helps people who have to pay a Part B late enrollment penalty or perhaps they have to pay IRMA. So you get some Part B money back. And then importantly, some of them have zero out-of-pocket health care costs. You go to the doctor, zero. Hospital, zero. Chiropractor, zero. Acupuncture, zero. The only thing that you pay out-of-pocket is prescription drugs. And then some of these Medicare Advantage plans are giving you the $2,000 out-of-pocket max a year early. At an advantage, next year, $2,000 out-of-pocket for prescription drugs. And that's really your only out-of-pocket health care costs. These have 
amazing savings to federal employees. When we did the numbers for 2024, if you're in Blue Cross Standard and switch to United Choice Primary, it's not available everywhere, but it's available in about half the states, you'll save over $8,000. And most of that is for sure savings because of how high the premiums are in Blue Cross Standard, both Part B and in the FEHB premium. Now, that's for a 70-year-old primary insured, self plus one, who lives in the D.C. area with average health care expenses. So your savings may be different than that. But the Medicare Advantage plans have tremendous value. They're probably going to be one of the lowest cost health plans for most people, but they may not be the right plan for everyone. If you're one of those high-income folks, that's income above 103000 for individuals or 206000 for a couple, you have to pay two IRMAs. you got to pay Part B IRMA and Part D IRMA. So that's an extra, even in the first tier, it's an extra about $70 on Part B. It's an extra 13 or so dollars on Part D. The financial value is now eroded, hasn't it? And the other thing to keep in mind is provider choice. Sometimes, you know, the providers that you have access to may be less than the plan that you're coming from. The Medicare Advantage plans say that you can see any provider that accepts Medicare and the plan. So definitely check to see how your current providers will be covered if they are covered. And also any future providers that you may want to see things like Mayo Clinic down the road or MD Anderson or some of the other Cleveland Clinic, some of the other really famous healthcare systems. If those are important to you, maybe not now, but sometime in the future, check that Medicare Advantage provider directory to see how they'll be covered. If you're retired and you're paying for two Irmas, that's better than paying for Gladys and Hortense, your two prior wives. Sure. And that's a recovering Kevin Moss, editor of the Checkbook Guide to Consumer Checkbooks. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Drew. And, of course, Drew Friedman has been joining me. Thank you, Drew. Thank you. We'll post the interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Still to come, the continuing resolution, and for the GSA, something of a continuing evolution. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Great. The continuing resolution makes things seem normal until at least the middle of January. But contractors should take note. The CR is less than it seems in terms of opportunities. We get insight now from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. Larry, before we get to that, I wanted to ask you about a revolution of sorts, not a resolution. And that is the way in which Congress could change the venerable multiple award schedule system by changing the pricing basis of it. And you're writing about that this week. And that that seems like a big sea change for something that contractors have butted heads over with GSA for decades. Tom, it's kind of difficult to see what's here. Uh, I think the primary reason that GSA is moving forward with requesting a change, and we're talking here about requesting a change to the Competition and Contracting Act, a law that's been on the book since the mid-1980s. And the specific part of the Competition and Contracting Act is the portion that says using multiple award schedule contracts meets the definition of the Competition and Contracting Act when doing so results in the lowest overall cost alternative to the government. And that's a big statement. It's traditionally been read to uh, include things like 
the time and overhead it takes an agency to stand up a new acquisition. So it's cost and other factors, not just the, the bottom line price you pay. Increasingly, though, I think GSA's inspector general, uh, other customers, and even some contracting officers inside GSA don't really understand that. They look at that lowest overall cost alternative to uh, mean lowest cost, period. And that was really never the intention. So what GSA is trying to do is ask Congress to say, hey, let's change this to really what it should have reflected in the first place, which is the results in the best value. You know, we want to have the best value in government acquisition. Certainly there's a place in some acquisitions for low price, technically acceptable. But Tom, you and I have talked previously about where that concept has been over-applied to the detriment of government and its missions. So I think what GSA is trying to do here by injecting the best value language into the Competition and Contracting Act definition is get it more attuned with reality and back to where Congress and everybody originally understood it to be, which is, look, the schedules program is a great value program, and it does save agencies time and money from standing up their own contracts or conducting their own acquisitions. So I think this is a common sense move. What it means in terms of GSA schedule prices is difficult to say. There are always crosswinds on that topic, Tom. While if you look here, you could say best value might result in uh, better pricing for contractors uh, at the contract level. You know, ultimately every contractor is still gonna have to be competitive. And at the same time, we have the administration's better buying initiative one of its key planks is to lower contract level pricing. So you really do have that cross current working. But this is progress in terms of what you and I can both remember from, you know, maybe 25, 27, 30 years ago when GSA schedule prices were supposed to be the lowest prices, not value, but prices to anyone. And if, you know, Boeing so sold something to the GSA schedule for $1.42, and somebody found it, you know, that they sold it somewhere else for $1.29, that connector part, then they were in trouble with GSA. Those days are long gone. Those days are, are gone for the most part, Tom, and that's probably a good thing. And I think really what we're talking about, you know, in the current marketplace where there's so much pricing visibility, uh, not just on the schedules, but anywhere you go, you know, if you think about how you buy in your own life, you know, over the weekend, I was doing some price comparisons. I looked at a specific industry website for what I was buying, and I looked at Amazon, and then I looked at uh, some specific OEMs. And all that pricing information was immediately available to me. That's the type of thing that's immediately available to government buyers too, Tom, whereas 25 years ago, it really wasn't. So allowing for best value uh, description for schedule items, I think makes sense. It honors the reality of what's going on. And it still shows that GSA schedule contracts have an excellent place and they are a competitive way of acquisition. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And the matter at hand now is the continuing resolution, which has varying runout dates for different agencies. You're saying, yeah, well, this is better than nothing but it's not really the best deal for contractors and don't take it as we're anywhere near back to normal. Right. I think that contractors need to understand that we are not operating under normal situations. 
even normal situations that traditionally come with operating under a CR, Tom. You know, we're talking here about really the first time in my memory and maybe the first time ever that we've had kind of a two-step CR. That is, some federal agencies are funded through January 19th, while others, the big ones like the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, are funded through February 4th. I think that gives Congress maybe an artificial feeling that it doesn't uh, have to focus on these issues right now. And indeed, we've already seen congressional attention focus uh, itself onto foreign aid, supplemental bills, things that would help Israel and Ukraine, all of which are important things to do and they need to get done. But what that means, Tom, for appropriations is they get pushed off probably into the next calendar year which gives us precious little time. And of course, what happens if things get pushed off into the calendar year is you could potentially be looking at a 1% across the board cut in discretionary spending. Congress put that 1% cut in the agreement that it reached when it passed the budget ceiling uh, deal earlier uh, this year, Tom. So if we didn't get our appropriations done by the start of the calendar year, an automatic 1% across the board cut would kick in. Well, now it looks like that's gonna happen. Now, Congress did this, so Congress can also undo it if they so choose, but at least right now, that's what we're looking at. So if you're a contractor or a government agency, you have to consider, not only can you not start new projects now that require appropriated dollars, you may have actually less money for part of the year uh, moving forward than you have now and less money than you had last year to do either more or at least the same amount of things you were doing. That's a real challenge. It's a real challenge for government agencies in terms of meeting their missions. It's a challenge for contractors in terms of how do I make sure that government business makes sense for my company. So in many ways, that 1%, the threat of that 1% reduction in discretionary almost has the effect of making government buyers fear being in a anti-deficiency act situation. It only takes 1%, and if you're spending more 1% more than you've got, then you're, you're legally liable. Right, and that's an important consideration. What we're talking about here in the anti-deficiency act is the government can't commit money that the government may not have to commit. So this could be something that on existing projects, the types of projects that contractors are using to keep their doors open and lights on right now, those could even be somewhat jeopardized. Uh, I think this is an issue, Tom, that's going through uh, the discussions in lots of not just contracting, but general counsel's offices throughout government probably attributes to or helps contribute rather to some of the slower pace of business that maybe some contractors are seeing because if you're in government, you have to address this issue of a sequestration and what it means and uh, what uh, it means not only for future things, but what you're already doing. You want to make sure you're staying inside the, the lines. Uh, contractors understand, hopefully, their compliance requirements, but they may not always know that their colleagues in government have the same compliance risks as well. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, X, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and The Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, December 5th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, as January 1st nears, consider improving your health care coverage. Plus, using Medicare data to uncover hidden signs of elder abuse. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, it might be easy to say that telework is the reason behind empty office spaces. That's partially true, but the Government Accountability Office says agencies' office space problems are much more complicated. The question of office space came up again in a House Oversight and Accountability Committee hearing last week. Here with the details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. All right. So I guess, first of all, why are they worried about office space and what did they have to say about it? The reason that they're worried about it is, of course, because they're still taking a much closer look at the telework of federal employees after a few years after the pandemic. And we've seen several hearings now from the House Oversight and Accountability Committee looking at, you know, why is telework uh, still so high? They're looking for more data and information from agencies. And they covered a lot of ground in this hearing just last week. But one of the things that they did point out was the matter of office space and specifically looking at agency headquarters in the D.C. area. Right. That was my question. They're concerned primarily with government-owned space at this point in this hearing and not the amount of excessive leased space, which is kind of another topic, really. Correct. Yeah, it's it's a little bit uh, complicated to look at both. But for this one, they're particularly looking at, you know, how well are agencies utilizing that space. So that makes it a question that's broader than just, you know, capacity or the amount of people going into the office. There's all there's questions that run a little bit deeper, according to the Government Accountability Office, on how uh, that all operates. And do they have figures on how much of federally owned space headquarters type buildings are actually occupied now on average? So there was a report earlier this year, and in the first quarter of 2023, we saw uh, from the Government Accountability Office's analysis that 17 of the 24 agencies they looked at were at just about 25% capacity. That was one concern that the lawmakers had in the House Oversight Committee hearing, and specifically Arizona Republican Andy Biggs had more to say about that. No agency... Uh, the federal government was utilizing more than 50% of their headquarters office space. The top quartile, average utilization rate was 35%. USAID and HHS fell into the second quartile, each with about a 23% utilization rate. 
SSA was in the bottom quartile of the agencies surveyed along with HUD, GSA, OPM, USD, and SBA. Each of those agencies averaged 9% building utilization. That's 9%. 9%. And when he says utilization, then how do they measure that? Because there's closets and hallways and places that are not occupied by cubicular federal employees. Exactly. There is a lot of complicated nature to measuring how much space can actually be utilized. The way that GAO measures it is they compare the total federal building's capacity against how much space the agency actually uses. So in other terms, the way that they, uh, the measurements they look at are usable square feet versus how many people enter the building on a workday. And you know, the General Services Administration, GSA, they set a baseline of about 180 square feet per employee. That's what agencies should strive for. But even now, GAO is saying, okay, well, based on, you know, the hybrid work environment and telework, and it seems like things are going that route, that number is probably outdated, and maybe there isn't even that much space necessary. So they're telling agencies, you know, go back to the drawing board, think about you know, how else can you downsize? Uh, and it is very complicated the way that agencies have to measure this. And I think it's it's hard for them to figure out exactly how much space they need, which is another problem. Sure. So cynics would say, well, let's just simply allocate 300 square feet per employee and suddenly the occupancy looks pretty good. Right. There, I guess that's, that's one way to look at it. But, uh, you know, I think that one other thing that is really important to point out here and that GAO has emphasized is that even if a building was at full capacity, 100% of staff were in a building, it would still only be two-thirds utilized. So that kind of points to the fact that, you know, telework does add to this. It does affect the building and office space utilization rate, but it's not, you know, even if that even if everyone was in the office, it wouldn't totally solve the issue. And I think that's what GAO has been uh, trying to say over several reports this year. Right. So if a building is third, a third utilized, then it's really 50 percent unoccupied based on that two thirds of maximum. Because, again, there's square footage that is not occupiable, but still is part of the square footage of a building like closets and utility space and that kind of thing. And so if it's not simply telework, then why are these buildings underutilized, do people think? What do they testify? One issue that GAO has pointed to and, um, you know, that keeps coming up is just simply the age of federal buildings. They were built, you know, for example, at the Commerce Department, their uh, headquarters office was built 100 years ago. And, of course, the way that the modern office place works and functions means a lot of those spaces that would have been used back decades ago aren't really applicable today. And it's hard to convert that space into things that are usable. Then you throw in the wrench of telework, too. It can become really complicated, one, not only to measure uh, how much space you need, but also to figure out a solution for that going forward. In other words, some of these old buildings could be functionally obsolete, really, in terms of the modern workforce needs. Right. And, you know, I I will point out that one agency, the Commerce Department that I alluded to, they talked about increasing utilization a little bit at this hearing last week. Uh, Jeremy Pelter is Commerce's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Administration. The department's headquarters saw the average daily occupancy increase from 24 percent in the third quarter of FY22 to now 42 percent, ending the fourth quarter of FY23, the most recent full quarter. The department anticipates that this upward trend will continue. So then the bottom line is more people will be coming in, does he say? That seems to be the implication he didn't specifically say in that case. But it is interesting to point out that the Commerce Department is on the upper end of things. So even at 42 percent, less than half uh, utilization, 
they're one of the best agencies from that GAO report. Did you know the Commerce Department used to have an aquarium in the basement that was a big visitor and tourist site? I did not know that. <laughs> I'd be curious if it was still there. <laughs> oh, it's not still there anymore, but that was kind of one of the strange things of Washington, that Commerce Department had an aquarium. <laughs> and I guess maybe there's a fishbowl or two here and there around the offices. So no conclusions and no real action or anything, just kind of admiring the problem of of buildings getting cobwebs. I think it's going to be an ongoing problem. Lawmakers on the committee, they talked about it a lot. They talked about a lot of other issues that they're uh, concerned about related to telework. I think it's going to be a matter of, you know, agencies are still rolling out their return to office plans. So a lot of this stuff has, you know, yet to come to fruition and we'll just kind of see how things go. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, using Medicare data to uncover hidden signs of elder abuse. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.